Hi there and welcome to Motos and Friends, a weekly podcast from the editors at Ultimate Motorcycling. This episode is brought to you by Yamaha Motorcycles. Yamaha revs your heart. I am Arthur Coldwells. In this week's episode, we chat with website editor Ron Lieback about his recent ride of the hot new Yamaha R7. Ron rode the bike on track, and I for one am curious about how the bike performed. In the second segment, our guest is Brian Weston, managing director of Arai Helmet America. Arai Helmets have been around since the 1950s, and the company is still owned and operated by the Arai family. I think it's fair to say that if you look up the word meticulous in the dictionary, there's probably a picture of Mr. Arai next to it. In this episode, Brian tells us about the company's theory on glancing off technology, and quite a bit more. I owe my life three times to Arai Helmets, so I hope I don't come off to you as too much of a fanboy. But needless to say, I really only feel comfortable pushing my limits on a two-wheeler if I'm wearing an Arai helmet. I hope you enjoyed this episode. The YZF-R7 bridges the gap between the entry-level YZF-R3 and the prestigious YZF-R1, offering a mid-level option for both new riders looking to grow into a more powerful motorcycle, as well as experienced riders seeking a fully fared motorcycle. Discover how the YZF-R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true super sport performance. With an advanced CP2 engine inside an ultra-thin and lightweight chassis, the YZF-R7 delivers tons of linear torque, providing you with exhilarating track day sessions or plenty of power for ripping your favorite canyon curves. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZF-R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. Okay, so uh, Ronnie, hey, thanks so much for joining me today. I understand that you've got to ride the new Yamaha R7 recently. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, it was a pretty good trip. We got to go down to uh, Atlanta Motorsports Park, which is a little private track. That is, uh, it's it's really, really good for this kind of small bike. It has 16 turns and it's, I think there's a thousand feet of, or a uh, hundred feet of different elevation changes. But um, being down there on the wow. R7, it was like, yeah, the it, it's like, it, it just spoke to the bike. It was like, they couldn't have picked a, a better track for it. So, uh, you know, this, this motorcycle that they developed here is filling that gap of that huge void that everybody's, you know, like, where's the super sport class? Where's the super sport class? And, you know, the, the whole crave for the inline sixes, as everybody knows, isn't as huge as it used to be. Or the inline fours, I should say, you know, like right. with the R6. So, <laughs> so <laughs> right. yeah, the, the bike came out and, you know, my first question to Yamaha was obviously when I saw the name, you know, I'm thinking about the 1999 R7, as you know. Yeah, been, there's, uh, there's been a lot of controversy about that. Well, not a lot, but but I guess old school guys are like, oh, oh the R7, uh, you know, how dare you reuse the name? But I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was my first thing because obviously, like guys like you and I, you know, we, we've been following racing for that long, so we understand that bike was, you know, one hell of a machine. I'd like to have someday, but <laughs> yeah, oh, so yeah. Uh, but the, the marketing department, 
you know, the, and this is the state side guys who actually developed and designed this bike. They said that, you know, most of the kids today don't even know what an R7 is. So they just wanted to use a name that was familiar, sounded sporty, but to provide a platform that wasn't as crazy sporty as the R6, which is now no longer available, only available now as a, a race bike. So this bike is, uh, it wasn't directly designed to fill the void, but it actually does. The timing was just perfect. <laughs> From from so. what I've read, it's I mean the motor I think is still stock. Is it the still still the same as on the MT07? Yep. Yeah, it's basically the same engine. Uh Yamaha doesn't release horsepower, but it still has, I think, like 74 horsepower, just like the MT07. And that's also in the Tonare 700. I mean, that you, you rode those, this that CP2 parallel twin engine is 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 awesome. So yeah. the one one thing I do know they did, uh, they did some transmission work to it because it, it did, after riding a bunch of MT-07s, I always had that twitchy feeling in the lower gears, but this one, uh, it's, it's a much smoother and they added a slipper, uh, system slipper clutch, which it was said to reduce clutch load by 20%. And I mean, basically for the whole day, I was using one finger, but they also had a, a $200 addition for a, a quick shifter, but only for upshifting which worked flawlessly all day. So, but yeah, that's the biggest difference I felt between the MT-07 engine and this is just the, the feel on the clutch and the clutch load. That's, that's impressive. I've also read that apparently if you want to go to a track shift pattern, it's pretty easy to swap that out. Yeah, yeah, they have the, the linkage set up like that. So it's, it's pretty much whatever you want to do, so. So they're obviously, they're obviously fairly serious about, you know, making this a, a, a track bike. Um, you know, but at the same time, it also sounds like an awesome street bike. I mean, that little engine produces so much low down torque. Um, I would imagine it's it makes a great street bike, too. I mean, this, this really seems like good for both. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on the track, it was fun. It really shows you that you have to be a good rider with a bike like this because, you know, there's no traction control and it's just it's it's all rider ability because they're low horsepower, you know, just the way it works. But. I did a few uh, like uh, street style simulation laps when we were on the track where I was letting the transmission dog down below like 2000 RPMs and just letting the engine work. And the, the torque is just, it's, it'll be super valuable for a, a street rider from, you know, being in town or just going to work versus or going for a weekend rip with your friends. So, you know, if you're out in the canyons or the twisties and just having a good old time, you could actually just become very lazy, short shift the bike and, you know, let, let the engine do the work through all the power band. It's a very linear feel. And the good thing about it too, is everybody like looks at a super sport, you know, clothed bike, which, you know, obviously, you know, this is based on the MT-07, but it does not, it, I mean, it actually does turn in better and feels more agile than the MT-07, even though, you know, the assumption would be the naked bike would be the better choice. Interesting. So what, what do you think that's down to? Because I got to tell you the MT-07 is a quick turning bike. I mean, wow. I mean, the, how, how, how have they done that? Do you think? I, I, it's, they raised the rear of the suspension just enough to give it that more agile feeling. And that's, that's what, uh, you know, when I was talking to the engineers about, it, I'm like, how is this thing turning in so sharp? I understand, you know, it's a smaller motorcycle and stuff. And it obviously is already going to have that feeling, but it's uh they they raised the rear shock up i i think it was just an inch or something like like on that and it, it totally changes the an geometry in, of the inch? bike they, they've raised yeah. it an inch or or maybe a couple of millimeters 
couple of mil. I forget what the exact the exact because uh, uh, all I know is the wheelbase was uh, it's it's a little shorter than the MTO seven. I think it's point two inches shorter. Okay. Actually. Okay. All right. The rake is the rake is steeper, and then uh, yeah, it still has a three point five inch trail. Okay. Off front and back. Is but, is there uh, any is there any swing arm pivot adjustment or or is it no no it is what no it is. this is what it is yeah so they just raised it a little bit and I, I think that's what made all the difference there and this also has the you know the tested and proven KYB front fork that's fully adjustable so that's a uh, forty one millimeter and okay. the rear it has a KYB shock too but uh, it only has rebound and spring preload adjusting there's no compression dampen settings but. Honestly, for the bike and, you know, I'm like 185 pounds and just under six foot, like it literally, like I didn't have any issues with the suspension. I did have to tweak the preload a little bit for the front fork when we were uh, playing and really the back, there's a few bumps on the correct line on the back of the, the straight at the racetrack. So like the bottom was bottling me out. But I mean, that that's running at full pace, like by the middle of the day, but the rest of the time, I don't, I, I mean, from the factory spec, this bike was just set up like pretty much perfect for me. Yeah, that KY, KYB suspension, every bike it, that, that I ride that it's fitted on, it it, it feels really good. Mm -hmm. um, so they've, I think, you know, these modern suspension guys, even though it isn't, you know, doesn't have the sort of the Olin's level of technology, as, you know, stock inexpensive suspension actually works really well. They've got the damping down, down very well. So yeah. it doesn't surprise yeah. me to hear that. But uh so have they changed the chassis at all on, on this or, you know, other than the swing arm pivot height? Uh, it's a swing arm pivot height. And like I said, it's just a little bit of a steeper rake okay. and that's it. But it, there, there's really not much change there. So, right. But, okay. uh, but like I said, the biggest thing was that they positioned the rear suspension leak uh, to raise the, the, the rear end just a little bit. Like, I don't know the exact specs, but it, it totally changed the, the whole feel of the bike. And, I think that was a big deal with the turn in and uh, just a feeling of agility on the bike. So awesome. Awesome. Um, I also understand, have they changed the brakes? I, I think there's now a Brembo master pump on there, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. It's a 16 millimeter piston for, and it's the first time they actually used it on a, to, they used a uh, radio master cylinder from Brembo on it, on a Yamaha. So this, uh, it, it has the 298 rotors. It, they're not as big. I think the R6 had 320s, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, the 298s are on this. But I mean, for this kind of horsepower and this kind of lightweight, like you really don't have to worry about too much of that. So it uh, they worked perfect. And they were, they're actually, uh, it, is it Advix? Is that the way you pronounce it? I never even actually. Uh, I've never figured it out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, so that's that's the, the way they have the, the braking set up on that. So it has the uh, Advix on the front. Uh, and yeah, with that Brimbo. And I mean, everybody knows Brimbo is just where it's at. And ABS is standard and it's not switchable. And, you know, most people when they're on the track, they're like, oh, I'm going to need the ABS off. But this, it, it wasn't even a problem. So I only felt it intervene a few times at the, the end of some straights where it was bumpy, but it's, it would, it worked, it worked off very well. Like I had no reason to shut it off. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm a fan of ABS. I guess I'm not fast enough on the track to really want to switch <laughs> it off, but, um, I, I like having the security of ABS and it's definitely helped me out a couple of times. So anyway, yes. I, I, yeah, it's just personal preference. Mm -hmm. So I guess obviously the, the other the, the main most obvious change is the full body work on it you know other than the change from the mt07 and how does how does that i mean it looks pretty good in pictures what's it like in person 
Yeah, it actually looks better in person than it does in the pictures. Because I remember when they first released the, the first look on this and I was looking through the pictures, I'm like, ah, that front headlight, that single like just bulb in front of the two right and left headlights was just awkward to me. But it seems so skinny in the pictures. And then when you get on, it feels even skinnier. And Yamaha says this is like a, a thinner or skinnier than the, the R3 even. So it's like it has this beautiful profile to it and it feels really small, but you know, it's not like cramped up at all. But the body work just flows, and I think it even has a better look than the R1, which you know, a lot of people will probably be like, no way, but I don't know. I just I, I like the rear call design, which uh replicates the R1 a lot, but that front fairing is just really cool. And that's how they got it to be so slim because they put that single headlight bulb in the middle there. So yeah, it's really it's really nice. I really like it a lot. So what's the so what's the bike like to ride? I mean, I guess obviously since the motor is stock and it's not a high horsepower machine, it's going to be all about handling. What what what's it like to ride? I mean, I know you're a corners guy, so what do you think? Yeah, that that was it. It was like you know you you run out of it on the the, the front straight and that. I mean, obviously it's not going to have the pull of any kind of leader bike or you know especially like the R6 or anything. But when you get into the corners with this thing, it's all about you know just just having a blast being a rider. And even if you're experienced, like we do a lot more you know track days and we, we do a lot more street riding than you know most of these uh, other riders that are just coming out. But I would say this would appeal to as much as an experienced rider, even a, a you know, a weekend uh, track guy because of the cornering ability and really putting your knowledge of using the brakes properly, using proper trail brakes, loading up the front tire, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're a novice rider, this bike, it's going to, it's going to be very easy on you to learn how to go quick, uh, faster, I should just say. So it's, uh, it's the, the chassis definitely speaks to, you know, both styles of riders. So you could go have a blast and, you know, if you're a newbie, it's really not going to hurt you up because you're not going to have all that extra horsepower where if you do over, you know, if you, if you put too much throttle in and your right brain, your right, your right uh, hand's not hooked to your brain, you know, you could get into some serious trouble, but <laughs> right. it's, uh, it's, it's really, it's really not there. Like, like I, even I, 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 I only started losing the rear end of the tire at the, the end of the day. And I mean, we were running, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, R11 tires, the Bridgestone R11s. And they were smoked by the end of the day, but that was the only time I was able to like actually step out the rear because there's just not enough horsepower there. So, and that's kind of relaxing because there is a special feeling too, when it, as you know, when you could just get on full stick, like right when you're coming out of a corner and not worry about just losing the back end or high side. Yeah, that's uh yeah, it's, that's a, a great feeling, but um the thing that the, the thing about we we recently did, as you know, we recently did a comparison um, of the new Triumph Trident and the MT-07. And as much as I love the MT-07, one thing I would say is it felt ever so slightly, maybe even slightly nervous just turning in. Um, and this thing is so quick turning. How was how was this? If this is quicker turning than the MT-07, does it feel does it still feel stable? You know. I mean, certainly on the straight it will, but I mean, when you're turning into corners, is it easy to upset it or does it just go round on rails? It goes round on rails. Yeah, that's, <laughs> okay. that's what I think. I think I think it's just a way, you know, they had the bike set up for the track too, but the suspension, okay. like when you're on the corner and I was, you know, when I was doing a street stimulation laps, uh, I was just totally getting off the throttle, you know, going to neutral throttle, like all the stupid things that you're not supposed to do, just to see what would happen <laughs> right. with the chassis. I was just trying to upset the chassis, but even coming down, there's some like, there's one turn that comes straight down and then you're heading up this big like hill. 
And I was chopping the throttle midway down, midway up the hill, you know, like just trying to loosen the steering wheel. And like it, it literally just, it, it, you could recover fairly quickly. So, and again, I think that's because you, you don't have all that crazy horsepower in the chassis set up to, you know, just basically, like you said, run on rails around these corners. So, right. So even, even on turning, it's still pretty, it's like neutral, just, it just turns in quick and, yeah. and, and stays there. Yeah. Yeah. The stability is what, what was most impressive. Like you say, you got a really quick turn in, but then like, you know, even when on the trail break and then when you're getting on the throttle and you're just rolling out, rolling out and then going full stick, it's like, it really, it really talks to you awesome. and keeps the chassis, you know, that stability where the front, the back and the front, that's all, you know, we want on a motorcycle because we want to be able to control both aspects all the time. So let's make that's it kind awesome. of easy. So even on the brakes, even hard on the brakes, it's still, it's not flapping around at the back or anything. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I mean, just because it's not such a fast bike, <laughs> like, you know, you're doing a buck 20 and you're, you're, you're just slamming on them. But like I said, there, when, the, when we had those bumps at the end of the, the track, like that caused some nervousness up front, but then I put some preload in and it kind of uh, took care of itself. Right. But, so it was just bottom, the, bottoming out basically. Yeah. Yeah. I was bottoming right. out the fork and just totally, you know, right. Uh, but for the normal, you know, everyday street riding, the, the chassis on this bike is going to be, it's going to, it's going to be nice and comfortable too. And that's another thing about it is the ergonomics on this bike. Like it's, it's not as comfortable as the R3, but it's not like everybody's comparing it to the R3 and the R6 and you know, the R6, a full super sport chassis. So it's like, yeah, you got that, that very bent over feeling. This is about, it's, it's just a little bit more upright, but it's, it was like, like I said, I'm just under six foot and it was right in this perfect zone for me. Like I didn't, you know, have to worry about my, my legs going numb or anything. Like I, I told you before, I think on our last podcast, like one of my, uh, uh, things that I, I regulate, like my, my actual comfortable feeling on a motorcycle is when my right leg goes numb or not numb because I have a rod in my femur. So that's especially on sport bikes. Like when I'm on a track, if I know a bike's not going to be comfortable for me within like the first 10 laps because I'm like, my right leg goes numb. So this, this was just nice. And I was able to ride at ease all day. It was just, it was, it was very enjoyable. Oh, that's, that's awesome. That's uh, it really sounds like just a fun machine. And, um, and even if you're a novice or a, just an intermediate guy and you're just starting to do track days or whatever, this like sounds perfect. Yeah. Sounds really yeah, and, yeah. yeah and, I think and of course the aftermarket has plenty of tuning parts. If you want a bit more horsepower, there's, there's a ton of stuff out there. So, you know, it actually yeah. sounds, sounds like a really, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I, Yamaha may be almost starting a new class almost. That's what it feels like. I mean, obviously they're not calling the, uh, the RS660, the Aprilia, their competitor, but everybody knows that's just who it is. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, it's like you, you could buy this bike for, it's like $9,000 and that's $2,300 cheaper than the, the, the Aprilia. I think that MSRP is at 11, 11299. Right. But, you know, that leaves over a lot of money for, for parts. And you know, I'd, I'd like to see both of these bikes put together on the track and on the street just to see, you know, that'd be a, that'd be a perfect uh, combo there. Yeah. 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 So we'll see what happens with it. All right. Awesome. Hey, thanks. So is there, so your impression overall of the bike was just sounds really positive. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is, it's very positive. And you know, there's, there's certain things that bikes are built for. And this is, it was when they, they when they were doing the launch on the racetrack, I was like, oh man. And they didn't, they were, Yamaha did a really good job of not letting a proverbial cat out of the bag on this one. But you know, we got there, I was like, oh, this is going to be full, full super sport, like, you know, track ready, super sport. But then after you're right in it, 
yeah, sure, it's a blast. But then you're like, man, what would this thing be like on the street? And like I said, after doing a few of the street simulation laps, like that's when I saw that this bike's really going to appeal to, especially like the newer riders that are coming up and they don't want the full out leader bike crate, you know, like they don't need all that. And this bike will do it all. And on the racetrack and the capable hands, I mean, the only time you're probably going to get beat is on the straightaways. So so it's a good all around bike. Awesome. Awesome. Well, listen, I really appreciate hearing your thoughts on it. Uh, I'm sure our listeners will find it interesting. Thanks so much. Really appreciate your time, Ronnie. And I guess I'll talk to you soon. All right, Arthur. Thank you. All right, thanks. <laughs> In this second segment, as promised, uh, our guest is Brian Weston, Managing Director of Arai Helmet America. I get to chat with Brian about the company's theory on glancing off technology and quite a bit more. I hope you enjoy hearing what he has to say. There's a place where the track meets the street, where the next generation of rider meets a new generation of super sport machine. It's called Our World, and the all-new Yamaha YZF-R7 is your gateway. The YZF-R7 bridges the gap between the entry-level YZF-R3 and the prestigious YZF-R1, offering a mid-level option for both new riders looking to grow into a more powerful motorcycle, as well as experienced riders seeking a fully fared motorcycle. Discover how the YZF-R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true supersport performance. With an advanced CP2 engine inside an ultra-thin and lightweight chassis, the YZF-R7 delivers tons of linear torque, providing you with exhilarating track day sessions, or plenty of power, for ripping your favorite canyon curves. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZF-R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. Brian, thank you so much for for joining us on our weekly oh, podcast. You and I have known each other a, a long while. I have a ride to, to thank for my life literally at least three times mm. that I can specifically remember. So obviously a lot of uh, a lot to thank Arai and your your engineers and your your builders and and uh, and just your technology for. Um, but before we sort of get into that, the, the, the thing that I'm, I, the thing that obviously has been interesting recently is you've really talked a lot about this glancing off technology. Mm-hmm. Do you want to, do you want to tell us a little bit about, you know, the history of Orion and, and what this, what this glancing off technology really means? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but before I start, I have to remind everyone, you, you don't have to test our helmets. We do a lot of testing. So please feel free not to, uh, to see if they work because they do work really, really well, right? Uh, there's no guarantees, but, you know, um, but I think we've all, you know, if, if you're trying and if you're stretching the boundaries, you're going you're gonna to tip over once in a while and you're going to hit the ground. I've hit the ground a few times and I've done it playing. And of course, I found the one rock in the middle of the field and I hit my head on that rock. So thank God right. I was thinking, all right, I'll put my helmet on today because even, you know, I work for the helmet company, but... I'm just going to go over there. I'm not going to go very fast. You know, those kinds of things, you know, I have to keep reminding myself that, you know, stupid hurts and even the smallest little crash can hurt a lot. So 
Can you, can you imagine how embarrassing it would be at the funeral, either yours or my funeral, yeah. if everyone's like standing around going, well, if only he'd been wearing a helmet. Yeah. I mean, really, yeah. I mean, that, that would just be unacceptable. It so. would be. It would be. But, um, but we all do it. I mean, that's the thing. You, you always think about it. Well, do I really? But uh, then again, I, I caught a bug in the face when I was wearing, you know, an right. open face. I didn't like that, you know. No. So in no. the grand scheme of things, if I can avoid it, at any cost, I will uh, for comfort or for protection. So, um, but to get to your to your question, I know we have a limited amount of time, and I talk a lot. When you ask me a question, I usually give you the full answer because short answers are nice. But Araya has such a big history and such a big connective. Everything affects everything else. Everything supports everything else. So, one little part is nice, but it has a bigger impact when you understand the whole story and how it fits within that story. So glancing off is a huge um, aspect of Arai's philosophy. Um, and it's, it's quite simple, actually. You know, smoother is better. Bowling balls are round and smooth because they need to slide and you know, they need to do what they need to do. So they're designed to be smooth. Aerodynamically, a smooth surface is cleaner. Obviously, modern day technology has been able to incorporate facets and angles into that to improve aerodynamics beyond just the smooth surfaces. But in a helmet's world, the idea of smooth and round, you know, has multiple reasons for being. Obviously a round sphere is gonna be stronger. Uh, every time you change the shape, you start to, you know, in a regular or exaggerated shape, you lose a little bit of that strength of the ball. Um, and of course, any exaggerated edge or facet on the edge of a shell has a potential to catch an edge, dig in, stop motion for even a millisecond can send energy to the wrong places. It can create excess rotation. So right. back, back and, 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 and twist your neck or, or twist your neck backwards or what have you. And, and even if that doesn't, doesn't kill you, it will, it will exaggerate the injuries that right. you get. Right. I mean, I, I always ask people, you know, sometimes you're riding in, 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 in the dirt, you put your foot down and you catch a hole and you twist your knee or your ankle, you know, and it hurts a tremendous amount. And you ask somebody, well, if it was a little bit less, would that be better? Well, of course, a little less is always better. So if you can avoid a little energy, you're avoiding pain and injury. So the idea is to minimize everything you possibly can. Anything having to do with energy, you minimize it. Now, when a helmet started, you know, there was just basic round, you know, round. They just made round helmets to fit over your head and a, a round mold was easier to get helmets in and out of. Um, round kind of matches the shape of your head. And over the years, a rise helmets evolved into an organic egg shape, if you will. And that, you know, your heads are kind of egg shaped. Some are very round, but most have an elongation component to it. Um, and that's where I learned the long oval, intermediate oval, round oval. Different markets, different regions of the world. I believe Arai is really is the only manufacturer that's actually really recognized that, aren't they? We're the only ones who actually pay a lot of attention and make helmets specifically. I think everyone's kind of recognized it. Now, I, I, I kick myself for not trademarking long oval, round oval, intermediate, because everyone uses that now as a reference. Um, they, and they gauge everyone based on Arai's references. Long, intermediate, round, you know, this, like, you know, a couple of manufacturers, I'm sorry, a couple of online guys have, have used that as their barometer, their gauge. And sure. this helmet's long oval, this manufacturer's round. And while it's a generic term, you know, they're all referring to Arai and they're all comparing it to the Arai long round intermediate. So we kind sure. of set that bar unintentionally, but I'm okay with that because 
when you compare shapes and fits, we really shine. Now, I really like to be compared to others because when you try and write helmet on compared to others, you know, price aside, style aside, color aside, no one fits better than a rye. Um, if you're fitted properly in the right size and shape, a rye will outclass any manufacturer, you know, and I'll bet my life on that. Um, so actually that that is that is completely true and again although i started off the conversation talking about the safety which obviously is why we wear helmets but but i i choose to wear a ride because of the comfort so yes so a ride have clearly put in a lot of effort into actually the fit as much as any other other part of it with you know adjustable cheek pads all kinds of things and and the fit actually comes from the original conversation was glancing off glancing off Again, the idea is to avoid impact energy, right? So going back to the original idea. So as you know, I keep reminding people, standards are important, but they don't represent the real world, but they're monumentally important. They keep everyone honest. They, they, they're laboratory tests designed to be repeatable in order to compare apples to apples, different brands, different types of helmets in some kind of standardized form. And that's necessary. It's important. It keeps everyone honest. It keeps people pushing and struggling and, and, and making better. But we ride on the, on, the, on the road at speed. And when we crash, we're moving at speed. Laboratory test, drop on a guide wire, hit an anvil, G-meter reads it, end of story. We're done. On a motorcycle, you're, you're, you're going 30, 40, 50 miles an hour. And when you crash, you slide, you tumble. It's a dynamic crash. There's a lot of things happening and you're not, energy doesn't come from one direction. You don't know what speed, you don't know what you're gonna hit, how hard you're gonna hit it, what's gonna hit first how many times you're going to hit. So right. helmets have to be designed for not only to pass the test and absorb energy, they have to be designed to deal with the reality we ride in. And that is impact and tumbling and sliding. So, so back in the day, helmets were very simple and basic, round and smooth. And then, and a couple of standards actually had uh, a, a minimum radius, 75 millimeters incorporated into the standard. And that's where R75 came from, minimum radius, 75 millimeters. Ra it, radius measured from where? Basically, just any and the radius of the top of the crown, wherever they impact test the helmet. So basically, there's a 75 millimeter uh, uh, curvature. So you can't have a minimum 75 millimeter um, curvature. We have an actual tool. Actually, I should send you one. Unfortunately, this is a, a podcast, so you can't see right. it. But we actually have a little cheat gauge that we put on the helmet, um, and it basically it basically just keeps the helmet. Um, a certain smoothness. You can't be too radical with the curve. It can't turn too hard. Uh, and basically, it was just a fundamental, understood factor of that was a, that would be a better helmet. Um, and, that, and that's from a from a strength point of view, the sort of the integrity of the shell. So if it takes a hard hit, or is that part of the glancing off? I think it was it was literally the original intention. I wasn't there. This was way back, way before even before I was born. I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> I think it was a function, a functionality of, I think somebody back then thought, you know, if it got too exaggerated, it would be a bad thing. You don't want edges. Uh, even, yeah. a, even a smooth edge is still an edge. It's still an outrigger, a leverage point. Right, so right. you basically want to try and keep it smooth. But unfortunately, as I said before, tests are standardized in a laboratory, dropping onto an anvil measuring cheese. At the time, there was no rotational aspect. Uh, to the testing. And even today, they're only just now incorporating rotation and trying to figure out oblique tests and how to uh, calculate it and keep it consistent. Um, but bef okay. before then, you know, back in the day, there was none. And I think 
you know, everyone was kind of had their hands tied. All the helmets were round, smooth, and boring. You know, if if I can, and I'm just making this up on my head, I'm, a, I'm imagining a manufacturer said, if I can make a helmet square and still pass your test, what do you care? You know, if, if I hit the G's and I don't pass, you know, I don't exceed what you're asking me to do, what do you care what shape it's in? And I think the standard said, yeah, you're right. You know, we're only testing for impact absorption and integrity. You know, the shell has to hold together. You know, the G's can't pass um, a certain level. And if you do that in a diamond shape or a square shape, you satisfied our test. Who are we to say anything other, anything else? So the, the R75 fell out of favor, came out of the standards. But Arai, looking at the reality we ride in, said, no, no, that's, that's pretty important. You know, it, it's fundamentally unchanged. The helmet is to protect your head in an impact, and the impacts don't change. And in fact, they're so unpredictable, we can't possibly ignore the potential that a square diamond or faceted shape might cause a problem, might cause a negative effect. Uh, an edge could dig in and stop for a moment, and that stopping sends energy into the helmet. Uh, it could dig in and rotate, like you said, creating excess rotation force, sending energy. We don't want it to go. So right. Arai felt that R75 was incredibly important to abandon. So they continued to use it in the design of their helmets because the idea of a helmet is to get between you and an impact. And when you look at a helmet, you've got about an eighth of an inch, maybe a little bit more of shell thickness and about an inch to an inch and a half of foam with which to absorb a tremendous amount of energy. Yeah. Every, every helmet, no matter how good it is, is inherently limited in its capacity to absorb energy, given the space that we're, we're given to work with, um, in, in a size that's reasonably wearable. We could make the helmets better, but they'd be bigger, heavier, uh, difficult to, to wear, to see out of. Um, and in an impact, the farther the shell gets away from your head, the more leverage it gets, the more unwieldy, the more energies you're dealing with. So it's weird in the fact that we have to keep it reasonably small, compact, light uh, in, in order to be usable. So because of that, helmets are limited in their capacity. They cannot possibly hope to absorb the amount of energies we're asking them to absorb. Um, Snell is the most strict standard in the world and th their drop speed is under 18 miles an hour. Sounds ridiculous, but when you look at a Snell test, it's a tremendous impact because it's a direct blow on a steel anvil, you know, with no deflection. It's just bang. Now, luckily or unluckily, the, the world we ride in and the world we crash in, we're moving. So when you crash, very rarely do you get a direct blow. You skip, you slide, you roll, you tumble, you bounce. So it's a very dynamic crash. So the idea is the helmet to go along with that crash, deal with all the things we think it might have to deal with while not interfering with that, not interjecting and not making anything odd happen. So as you tumble and slide, the helmet should tumble and slide with you. Uh, if you hit an obstacle, the smoother and the stronger the surface, the more likely it is to bounce or glance off that surface. Um, sliding across a very rough or, or uneven surface, the shell has to be strong and smooth in order to, again, to slide smoothly with your body. If your body's sliding static, your helmet needs to slide. So, so again, the issue comes down to, um, as you're sliding through an impact or, or sliding, you know, as you're uh, doing a crash, smooth, strong, round shells will slide on surfaces and not drag or slow down. So as your body's rolling, your, your head needs to roll with it. As your body slides flat, your head has to slide flat. It can't, if it catches something and rotates, 
not only sends energy into the helmet, creates rotational force. So as you slide and skip and bounce and glance off obstacles, you're basically passing by all that potential impact energy. Anything you pass, that's in the past now. Now you're looking forward. Any obstacle you can skip over, you've now um, limited how much energy the helmet had to avoid or absorb. So, I, so throughout the crash, it has more potential to absorb more energy in the future. So the more you can avoid, the more you have left in reserve. Uh, I love Mr. Ryan made the comment one, once. It's like um, a lot of companies now are trying to manage impact energy and rotation inside the helmet, right? And he goes, we're limited. There's only so much space. So when you try and manage rotational force inside a helmet, you have to take away some of that styrofoam, some of the absorption capacity. In our world, is that's crazy because there's only so much absorption you can do. You're so limited. Why would you want to take any of it away to deal with the, uh, another force? So you're trading from one for the other. You're compromising one for the other. Now, if you have a rotational impact, okay, you've done something good. But if you don't take a rotational impact, you've lost some ability to absorb. Now, if you do take a rotational impact, almost all of these fundamental rotational mechanisms for dealing with energy, rotational energy inside the helmet, all have limitations themselves. They can only rotate so far before they stop, before they run into a stop. So in my estimation, they're delaying inevitable. They're, they're, gonna, they're gonna let the helmet, you know, they're gonna, the helmet will rotate, but your head will stay stable for a little bit. But as soon as the helmet catches up and stops, your head's gotta catch up with that rotation. Um, so it's one of those things where it sounds like a good idea. It's, it's new tech that they threw into the helmet that may work in some instances, but not all. Um, you're asking something limited to deal with potentially unlimited energies. You don't know how much the rotation, how long it's gonna go, or how hard it is, how quick it is. So our world is, you know what? Rather than try and deal with it inside the helmet, try and leave it outside. So it's like, you're inside your house, you got five burglars outside. And uh, you know, bad guys trying to get in your house and you know, you're armed, so you're like, let them in, I'll take care of them. So right. like you one against five, but let's say you have a security system on the outside of your house and you can block four of those guys from getting in and only one gets in. Now you only have to deal with one guy. So that's kind of the same thing we're dealing with. Keep as much bad out. So whatever does get in, you have a better chance of dealing with and managing. Right. The way I tend to think of it, it just actually in, in riding motorcycles in general, it's all, all we're doing is is constantly managing risk yeah and it's all about every tiny little thing you do if you can increase those odds just a little bit just increase those odds you're just that little bit less likely to get hurt or worse and and in your world when you're talking about impact that's taking it to sort of the next level and it's like okay so an impact is inevitable an impact is going to happen in the next you know two seconds what can we do to manage to reduce those odds or, or to, to improve those odds that that something's you know that 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 hey you might well get hurt but we let's try and minimize it as best we can and and i think you're right i think um the the glancing off idea is simply improving those odds it might only be a little bit but every little thing that improves those odds is is better in my experience i haven't experienced too many rotational 
too many rotational impacts. Um, rotation is not my biggest concern. Impact is my biggest concern. And, and it, it continues to be the biggest aspect of most crashes. You know, rotation is a fundamental, you know, potential. It can always happen. And in a lot of crashes, it does happen to some degree. It's just a thing that's been not ignored, but hasn't really been addressed. So I think this, the, the, the market is looking to improve. So that's something they haven't done. So they decided to, to capitalize on it um, and do something to show that they're doing something. Uh, we've been talking about rotation for 50 years and we've been dealing with it in plain sight. People keep asking, why don't you do something like everyone else? And I'm like, well, we've been doing it for 50 years. Our helmets are round and smooth. We deal with it in the outside of the shell. We keep the rotation outside. Think about it. If you had a helmet and it rotates, uh, and you have these internal mechanisms that have a limitation of, let's say they just go, you know, 10 degrees, they just rotate 10 degrees, you know, now think about a shell as you're, as you're sliding down the road and you're, and you're tumbling, the helmet is rotating and sliding 360 degrees and you can roll and tumble all the way down until you stop. And that helmet never stops minimizing rotation. Never. It is constantly minimizing rotation while at the same time, the entire liner inside is absorbing energy every time you bump or hit. So it's the perfect, maybe not the perfect, there's no perfect, right? No one's perfect, but it's the best combination of a mechanism working hand in hand. You know, the absorption and rotational uh, mitigation, you know, the glancing off are working together. So one isn't better than the other, one isn't more important than the other. Uh, I think impact energy for head-ons like you just experienced is still probably the most likely common, but rotation's always there. You know, there's always some factor of it. And like you said, any little bit we can improve is, is, is important. The problem is we haven't been able to measure it. It's, it's, it's horrible because like a bike, you can improve performance and measure it. You know, tire, you know, it's, it's tire technology, tread patterns, you know, the compounds, aerodynamics, suspension, you can define that it's better. And unfortunately in helmets, we've been working out for 50 years, making tiny little incremental improvements every single time because we always want to make the helmets better. We don't wait for the new standards or somebody to suggest something. We're always trying to make them better. And all those little, little improvements build to a better, better, better. And some don't work at all. Some have a bigger impact than we ever thought they would. Um, but the mo for the most part, we always build on something that's been foundationally proven. You know, we always do a little bit to see if we can make it better. Make, never making a big leap because you never know. If it's wrong, you could do harm. You know, you might actually cause a problem. So we never throw big tech at our helmets because they've been designed to work in harmony, round, smooth, strong shell, soft multi-density liner to deal with the energy uh, that, are, that gets inside. You throw a wrench in that, it could mess up the whole, the whole work. So it's hard to explain to people that, you know, this little bit is gonna go that much better. You know, you can't define it, you can't prove it. All we can say is Arise the only company that agonizes over it. We've been doing it since the very beginning. The same family that founded the company is still running the company. It's still riding motorcycles and trusting their own lives to the same helmet that they sell to their customers. It's it's one of those things where you have to kind of ask who made my helmet and why. Right. Was it made right. to not meet a price point or hit a a certain standard in this market? You know, was it there to look cool, be aerodynamic, or you know, what what were the purposes of that of that helmet? So, and that's our story. We try and tell more than anything, um, but almost everything a ride does to improve their helmets is completely hidden once you paint. And even if you look at our bare shells and we put them out there for everyone to see, 
We give every dealer that sells in Rye Helmet a bear or rye shell so they can show their customers, they can stand on it, try and break it, uh, look at our, our multi-density EPS liners and crush it in your fingers and see all the different densities and where they're placed and why. I mean, we're open to letting people see everything, but even looking at our bare shell, you see a lot of little pieces, but you have no idea how long and how hard it took us to get there and figure out what worked, what didn't work. Because there was no Google when we built our helmets. There's no book that says how to build the best helmet. Mr. Ryan and his crew had to figure it all out. And to their credit, they stuck to their guns in a single direction over the last 50, 70 years. Since 1950, um, they've been making helmets for protection. Since 1978, when Mitch took over, he's been focusing on being the number one in protection. And to his credit, you know, Arise held that high ground ever since. Clear, clearly, you guys are doing something right, because obviously there are a lot of top flight racers in, you know, across all motorsport disciplines. Um, you know, when I think of MotoGP, of course, uh, you know, most obviously Maverick Vinales is is a, an Arai rider. I assume that, uh, you know, all of these guys have, you know, custom designed special helmets that are all, you know, way better than anything that you can buy, you know, that the, the customer on the street can buy. Is that true or, or not? No, no. In, in back in the day when we first got into racing and racing for Arai is still very much part of our, our uh, R&D. We, we got into racing because racers would put their helmets to the extreme. They would, they would just abuse their helmets. And we learned, we learned a lot in racing because, you know, they, they would be very picky, a great feedback. Um, so we learned how to make the helmets more comfortable, more stable, um, better sealing aerodynamically uh, for their eye port, ventilation wise, weight wise, uh, center of gravity wise. And we had to play with those things and develop helmets um, for that and use that as, as, um, our, I guess, test bed going forward. And that's where we learned that Americans have, you know, the melting pot of the world. We have multiple head shapes, but we have a, we have a large population that have narrow, long heads. I'm a long oval myself. So they actually tuned or learned that long oval, intermediate oval, round oval in the American racing scene. And then over the years, we got better and better at it. We used to have to make custom sized helmets. You know, Kevin Schwantz had a very specific head shape. We had to customize every single helmet for him because it was so unique. But we learned how to make a more standardized helmet interior that fit more people. So while we made cutting edge helmets to develop for racing, once we got to the point where we had a pretty darn good product, we had the fit down pretty, pretty, pretty nice and it fit a lot of people right out of the box. Arai decided, you know what? All right, now we can do it. We're going to pull the plug. And Mr. Arai in 1978 introduced the first, um, he tested every single shell twice officially. Before that, it was just one. Um, and every wow. one helps improve catching the bad egg, if you will. And by doing that, it gave him the confidence that racers could wear production helmets. We didn't make any special helmets for racers from that point forward. We might have to tweak the liner to fit an odd shaped head, extra cheek pads or a wedge in the back to, to deal with the flat spot. Other than that, it's a box stock helmet. Um, some of our racers are wearing their box stock replicas with stickers. Um, you know, Vinales' replica, if we needed to, we can go buy a helmet off the shelf, throw his sponsor logos on it, and he'd wear it. Same thing with, you know, Jonathan Rea. Uh, it's basically, um, they're endorsing a product that they wear. They could take great pride in the fact that what they're wearing is literally what they're endorsing. And they can take great pride in the fact that if a customer buys their helmet, they're getting the exact same level of protection. And to be honest, on the street, you need more protection. 
on the racetrack, you're all going in the same direction. You're all professionals. You have runoff, you have air fences, you have ambulances, you have flagmen. You have a lot of safety involved in that racing environment. On the street, you've got traffic going the other way, distracted drivers, bumpers, guardrails, you know, all these things out to get you. So in fact, the consumer right. needs a better helmet than a racer. You know, they're going faster, but they're actually yeah, right. in a safer environment, right? So, right. So we've been like, since 1978, we have made a production helmet for everybody. Everyone, Mr. Arrive, he wears a bone stock white helmet off production. They don't make him one. They go grab one off the production line for him if he wants to go riding. So I, I, I just for the record, I did actually know that. I just wanted to, thought I'd provoke. I, I got to <laughs> uh, both barrels. Yeah. I told you. Yeah, no, yeah, no, there's, uh, I, I would hate for people to think that, that racers were getting some sort of special treatment. I mean, I, I think it's extremely impressive that we can go out and buy MotoGP technology or, you know, F1 technology, um, you know, off the shelf and you get exactly the same level of protection. Um, and that's, I think that's quite a statement, really. And, and, and the cool thing is we, we are involved in Formula One, which I always kind of lamented because it's, it's not a sap on resources, but it's resources. And we sell quite a few car helmets and we do pretty well in it. But I look at a riot, it's like, God, you know, it just can't we, you know, that's so much money and all this stuff. But it, it turns out they went through all the things that Formula One contributed to the development of motorcycle helmets. You know, the, the, our new FCS cheek pad system was developed from Formula One drivers complaining about the fit of their helmets. So we made a new cheek pad for Formula One and we worked it into to, to our, our street helmets. Uh, peripheral belt. You know, shell technology reinforce our shells without making them thicker or heavier came out of Formula One. So there's a tremendous amount to be learned in every aspect of impact, uh, energy management, basically. So Formula One had a huge uh, hand in that. So the R&D aspect of racing, I can't, I can't dismiss. Um, but it's become more marketing, I think, than anything. It's exposure, which is great. It, you know, you win on sure. Sunday, sell on Monday kind of a thing. But for us, it's still very much R&D. We're still the smallest probably helmet company in the world. We don't have that much you know, discretionary income to, uh, to, to pay out to racers. So we don't, you'll notice we don't have a ton of racers. We, we pick and choose. We want racers that appreciate what we do, that are, want to be part of what we're doing and developing what we're doing and understand that they'll never get the most money from a ride, but they're going to get the best helmet we could possibly produce. And they'll have a hand in developing it. And the customers that buy their helmet because of their endorsement are getting the very best helmet even that the racer can wear so it's it's still a tremendous um tool to help us continue to make the best helmets we can because as mr rice said the function of a helmet has never changed it's still about protection first and foremost you can throw everything else you want at it it is but but that sort of segues into the other half that we've touched on because at the end of the day hopefully you don't crash and I'm sure there are lots and lots of Arai owners out there that have never crashed in an Arai helmet. And every five years they're sitting there going, well, I guess it's time to, you know, change my helmet, you know, and they've never crashed in it. Um, and a huge part of that, you touched on uh, peripheral belt technology a minute ago. That is, is massive. There are so many helmets. Again, as a, as a moto journalist, I get to wear whatever helmets I want. Um, and and I have to say, you pull on an awry and you don't crush your ears pulling it on and off. It's such a basic thing, but but it's it comes it comes you know uh, you can put it on easily, you can take it off easily, just much easier than the other ones. Um, 
and, and that's just one tiny little thing. But once the helmet is on, comfort is so vital a, a, a part of what you're doing. Um, and I think that does feed into safety as well, because if you've got hot spots inside your head and you do take an impact, that is going that hot spot is going to hit your skull a little bit harder than something else. But just from a comfort point of view, it is vital to have have comfort built into that. And your, you know, adjustable cheek pads and, and all of those kind of things is is uh, is very impressive. And, and is that something that you guys took a long time, took a long time to develop? I mean, it, everything takes time. You have to find the right materials. I mean, that is, that is the hardest part. You know, a lot of people think helmets, especially expensive helmets should last forever and they should be indestructible. And they have to understand that, that the helmet wasn't, it's not designed to last forever. It can't, and it can't be indestructible because part of its function is to destruct, you know, self-destruct in an impact. Um, and the better the helmet does its job, sometimes the more fragile, and I use the, fra the word fragile, uh, you know, cautiously, um, you know, you drop your helmet, you could crack it, you know, slightly, you'll break parts, um, you know, you clean it with chemicals, it will destroy the plastics and some of the rubbers and the glues. Um, but developing that the fit had to do again with making the shell more organic, so that it's closely matches the, the shape of your head a little bit more closely, the multi density liner that we can use because our shells are stronger and smoother and rounder allows us to make a multi-density liner, which now is thinner because it can address different areas of the helmet with different densities to absorb different levels of energy based on the type of impact you might get. All of that allowed us to make the helmet smaller, more compact, match the shape of your head better, lower the center of gravity. And with the softer foams, you don't have that hot spot. Even if the liner is pressing against your head, it's less painful than others that might have a harder liner. Uh, the soft foams for fit, we try and keep them as thin as possible because you want the, your head to be as close to the EPS styrofoam as possible. Um, any, any, any distance, you know, your head speeds up a little bit before it hits. It's got to hit that material and, and to start absorbing the energies. So the farther away it is, the more speed you pick up before you hit it. So you want to be right up on top of it. So there's a balance of too much foam, too little foam, too much contact with EPS, too much pain, you know, and the helmet you know, bopping around in your head and moving at speed. All those things. So it was just, I don't think we one day locked ourselves in a room and said, we're not coming out of here until we've got the most comfortable helmet in the world. It evolved over time because we found better materials and we realized people were willing to spend more money for something that fit better and more comfortable. And like you said, some people never crash in an Arai. And I've said in the past, even if you never crash in an Arai helmet for what it was intended for, it is going to be the best helmet you've ever had in your life. It will let you ride longer, ride further. People will stop after hours on a bike to get gas and they don't take their helmet off. I got racers who finish a race and sometimes they'll conduct their interview with their helmet on because they're not itching to take it off. They're not agonizing to get it off their head. They forget they're wearing it. If you have a properly fitted Arai helmet in the right shape and size, you put it on and within a few minutes, you've climatized it. You know, it's now matched your head temperature and you forget it's almost there. You know, and I remember a few years ago, you also widened the eye port quite a lot. Um, and I think that's part of the thing because um, the most one of the most common criticisms I hear of people who don't like wearing helmets and a lot of, you know, cruiser, I'm happy to see cruiser people are now starting to, to go more to helmets. But a lot of old school, oh no, 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 I get too claustrophobic, it's too claustrophobic. But I always say to them, put on an array, you've got this wide eye port. And really, I mean, the thing is so comfortable. I, 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 I am a bit claustrophobic myself. Never been, never been that way in an array helmet. It's those little 
little details. Yeah, they, they, I mean, they agonize over it. And again, that came out of racing. You know, racers have an incredible peripheral vision. Uh, most people, there are very few people that will actually see our eye port in their true peripheral vision. I mean, if you look a little left, a little right, you'll catch an edge of it, but it's a pretty far cry from what it used to be just 15, 20 years ago. Um, but that's a huge part of, you know, you almost feel like you're on a fishbowl. You know, there's so much, you know, going on in front of you. You have so little to distract you that it is, in fact, um, it takes away that, 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 that claustrophobic feeling. But also, if you look at that, our, our liners are thinner than most because of the multi-density. So therefore, your, your face is closer to the edge of the helmet. You get a better field of view going up, down, and to the sides so that while our eye port is wider than most, the fact that your face is closer to the opening, you get even a bigger field of view. You're not looking like you're inside this cave. You know, you're, you got your, head, your face pressed up against the window. You know, and you're looking out this just giant panoramic window. So it is a true, uh, a truly liberating experience. You, you're not claustrophobic. You don't feel like you're trapped, and you have a, a wide field of view that I don't think most helmet companies can match. And again, that comes out of a rise desire to make the helmet better, not just you know price points and profits and features and benefits. It's how do we make it a better helmet for protection and for the rider experience, lighter, you know better field of view, more comfort. I mean, all those things, I mean, everything about a helmet really, you know, there is no one most important factor, aerodynamics, ventilation. Aerodynamics and ventilation are definitely a personal thing. Um, some people say, oh, my helmet's so noisy. Well, the bike you're riding, the size of your, 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 your neck, your shoulders, if it's too big or too little. Um, the aerodynamics, you know, big fairing bikes have a lot of dirty aerodynamics. So ventilation and noise um, are some things we cannot control. No one can control. We can make a helmet as quiet as we want in the wind tunnel, but we don't ride in the wind tunnel. You know, so it's 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 the most challenging at this point. Um, and there is yeah. no perfect solution, unfortunately. No, not without sealing up the neck the neck area. Yeah. Most of the noise for me comes in between my shoulders and 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 underneath underneath my jawline, and. Um, and riding on a freeway, if I scrunch my shoulders up, you know, then it all goes quiet. Yep. Um, I can't honestly say a, an array is quieter than any of the others that I've ridden. I can't honestly say it's noisier than any of It's just, I mean, we're doing 80 miles an hour in the in a freaking breeze, you know, or more. So it's going to be noisy. I'm sorry. There's, you know, if, if it's too noisy, wear earplugs. Well, um, wear earplugs but, anyway. Even if a helmet's quiet, even even. I do actually. Yeah, even even sounds that aren't too annoying, too much of it will eventually start to wear at that decibel level. So it's really a good idea to, to still wear earplugs. But you're you're absolutely right. People call us and say, you know, my helmet's so noisy. I put my hand up over here over my 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 side pod and the side pod it went quiet. I'm like, sir, you just put this giant airfoil, your forearm, front of your helmet, and it's created this, you know, this buffer. So you're right. The right. turbulence of all the air hitting your chest and your face that's trying to cram itself between the three inches between your shoulders and the helmet creates incredible turbulence. So again, if a helmet fits you correctly, it seals out that noise. That helps keep it quiet. Aerodynamically, I'll ride five bikes. My, my helmet, my favorite helmet will be noisy to quiet, but when I stand up in clean air, it's unbelievably quiet. So our helmets are incredible in clean air. So if you're riding a naked bike, you're probably gonna be really, really good. Beyond that, it, there's gonna be varying levels of, of noise, but it's perspective. I've had a lot of people say, you know, I've heard wonderful, great things about Arai and it's so loud. I'm like, well, what was your first, what was your helmet before this? Well, no, Arai was my first helmet. I'm like, oh, you have no idea what loud is. 
I go, <laughs> so if you think your rice is loud, please go experience other things. And they come back and say, you're right. My rye was quiet. So, so it really is a matter of perspective and understanding. So you're right. Not every, nothing's quiet. Although we did, we did a, a, a ride in Japan not too long ago, and I was really impressed with how quiet. I, I rode one particular bike, and it was so quiet. I was so impressed um, because I don't get to ride that much. I'm chained behind my desk most of the time. But when I, I got out there in the, in the, in the, the hills of Japan, riding through the, the mountains, it was beautiful scenery, a really nice bike, a really nice day, and it was quiet. And I was just so thrilled. Um, so it just reminded me how much fun it is, and, and I got to get out more. Yeah, the other thing... Um that I noticed you guys, and, and I don't know if this is actually an Arai product, um, but the visors, the windshield on it, um, those are optically perfect. And it'll surprise you, but not all of them, not all of the other manufacturers are. I have ridden helmets, and by the time I've arrived wherever it is, you know, an hour later, I'm in the process of getting a migraine um, because there's something going on in the visor that isn't quite right and there's it's it's i guess it's the curvature you i mean as a helmet manufacturer everybody's having to deal with a curved perspex surface which cannot be easy to make that optically perfect but a riser absolutely spot on so do you make your own visors or how do you guys achieve that they do they i mean a ride doesn't like we we, we um contract with specialists in each field. I mean, the injection molded plastics, we obviously contract with the companies that are near to a rye. Everything's gotta be close to a rye. Mr. Rye likes to have his thumb on the pulse of everything. He wants to be in total control. If we can't make it, he wants somebody close by that he can, you know, convince that they need to make it because they're making it for an rye, they need to make it quality and he can go visit them anytime he wants. Um, so the, the liners, you know, the, the materials that are sewn, you know, at the sewing houses and whatnot, they're all close by and they're all building to a rye spec um, they have ownership in some other companies to make sure that they have control over quite a bit of the, the functionalities and the shields is one thing that they agonize over and for the longest time we did uh, heat drape form you take plastic sheets punch it drape it and people always thought that was antiquated and old school and cheap and in fact it was more expensive than injection molding but it gave us better optics Nothing's perfect. You know, I love the fact you love it. It's, it's perfect. It's the best, I think, in the market, but it's probably not 100%, but it's as close as you're going to ever get. But the drape form stuff, the sheet stock was beautifully clear. And then when you drape it and form it, as long as the form is nice, you'll get a really good optics. Uh, we've only recently switched to injection molding probably about five or six years ago with our, um, I think, the last generation, the SAI uh, helmets, the, uh, the previous shield system. And they only did it because they found a manufacturer of injection molding that worked with them on polishing. And it's the polishing of that curvature. It's three-dimensional, left, right, up, and down. Um, two dimensions easy. Left and right's easy when you're doing a ratio. But when you're doing three dimensions, it could look good. But like you said, you'll get a headache because you don't know why, but your eyes are having to deal with that imperfection. Um, and Arai agonized over that mold for the better part of a year because they would refuse to accept the quality that the manufacturer would accept. The injection molding company said, we've made other shields for other people and they're fine with this. And, you know, that was our first introduction to good enough. You know, rye is never good enough. You know, we've always, always look to make it the best we possibly can within the parameters of reality, right? Um, and that's why our rye tend to be a little more expensive because of the effort we put in and all the little details. Our shields, we agonize and make them that much better. And you may never appreciate it. You appreciate it. Most people probably won't recognize it. Maybe they, now they will. They'll go like, wow, you know, I never really noticed 
that they are pretty optically correct um, within you know a, a couple of points. Um, so it's it was something that I gave great concern to, um, and for always. And that also came out of racing. You know, racers have excellent vision. You know, Freddie Spencer was our first world champion, and he wore contacts, and he helped us develop a better seal because his contacts, if if his shield leaked. Uh, his contacts would dry out and they'd pop out of his eyes and they'd stick to the inside of the shield. <laughs> there were a couple of races where he came in with one eye. You know, he would basically finished the race in one eye. So we had to create a better seal so his contacts wouldn't dry out. And then with that, of course, uh, not interfering with your optics, you know, not messing with your, your, your prescription. So that forced us to make a better shield. So again, racing played a big part in the fact of at those speeds, you need the optics. And then a ride decided, well, let's give it to everybody. The consumers should get the best we can do too. And then of course, volume. If we're going to make it, you might also well make the volume better and you can get better uh, logistics. There's, there's, there's value in, in numbers. So it's one of those, again, it's one of the agonizing features that most people would say it's good. 80% is good enough. 90% is good enough. Um, but in a rise world, you know, we don't want to think later, could we have done better? That's one of the things, and I'm just going to jump a little further forward. You might ask or not, but you know, there's no guarantees. Uh, a lot of people think helmets should should stop everything. They can't. There's always a crash out there in, in the world that could overwhelm even our helmets, the best helmet in the world. There's always going to be an energy out there that could overwhelm it, and that's a hor horrifying thing to think about. But knowing that we did everything we possibly could in every aspect of the helmet, you know, visor optics, the shell strength, EPS liner. Uh, densities, all the energy management testing and development we did, we can hold our heads up high and know that we couldn't have done any better. No other helmet could have done better. It allows us to sleep at night knowing that we did the very best we possibly could. It just wasn't a crash that anyone could have possibly uh, withstood. And, and that's what drives us to make helmets the best we possibly can and give everyone the best we possibly can because you never know who's going to need it. A racer or a guy in the street, you know, riding home from work in a truck like yourself turn, makes an illegal U-turn and you, 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 you're faced head on. Um, so we want to make sure that we are never second guessing ourselves, asking ourselves, did we do enough? Could we have done enough? Should we have done something else? Uh, even in the small details. But when you add up all the small details, it is the whole. And therefore, we don't sweat. You know, we sweat over every single detail. We don't let anything slide. It must be a challenge in your business because technology is constantly improving. You know, we look at the way, you know, race bikes, the way production bikes, the way, you know, parts, everything, everything is improving. Electronics, I mean, all this new whiz-bang stuff. And I would imagine that as a helmet manufacturer, you're constantly under pressure to, oh, what's the next latest, greatest thing? You know, what's the next cool thing you're going to come out with next year? And it's re it must be very tough for you guys to say, no, that there isn't any new technology. Our heads are still the same as they were, you know, sort of, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago. Our heads haven't changed. Uh, we, you know, we've developed this thing. So, so that's got to be a challenge for you guys. There isn't, a, there isn't a new wonderful whiz-bang technology that's, that's going to come out. All you can do is keep doing what you do and do it the best you possibly can. Absolutely. We, 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 can't, we, we get kind of beat up a little bit saying, why haven't you guys done anything new? Right? And I said, we, we're constantly improving. We're, all, we're constantly hiding improvements in the show. Not that's where it winds up. 
new resins, new materials, new, new, new fibers. We use S-glass, super fiberglass, which basically is you know, six times more expensive, but 30 times stronger than regular fiberglass. Um, but I use it because the shells be thinner, stronger. Um, we make a peripheral out of it. Um, that was technology developed from aerospace, um, but it's hidden and it's not sexy. It's not this, you know, you know, this this 3D animation that gets everyone all excited about. Like carbon is the biggest, you know, oh, why don't you make carbon helmets? And we do make carbon helmets now, but carbon isn't the end all be all. Carbon does some things very well, but it doesn't do everything very well. In fact, when we were forced to, de to develop a carbon helmet for Formula One, they required carbon. That was part of their requirement. And Arai had to very quickly figure out how to make a carbon helmet because we didn't have one at the time. And Mr. Arai's direction to his R&D guys was, all right, if we're gonna do this, make sure it's as, at least as good as the fiberglass helmet, which was remarkable. He wasn't expecting it to be better or set the world on fire. He just wanted to make sure that they didn't go backwards because he knows the limitations of carbon. It's incredibly strong, but when it gives up, it just breaks. Right. Whereas fiberglass, you can design it to, you can meter it, you can tell it what to do, you can design it to flex and crack and delaminate, but still hold its integrity over multiple impacts. Whereas carbon, once it breaks, there there is not a whole lot left to to, to give. So he they they found a new carbon that that in a, in the weave we chosen was quite unique. It's large and the the fiber and the filaments are different, and it had the flexibility of fiberglass. It's the most incredible thing. Wow. You know, so our carbon helmet's a four thousand dollar carbon helmet. And people are like, I can get a carbon helmet for $800. I'm like, <laughs> I know you can. You can buy that carbon material on eBay. Yeah. But the carbon material we use, we got out of a company that contracted of aerospace and Boeing. And we're the only people outside that market that got it because we knew the people who made it. And it turns out that to make the Boeing wings, it was a tremendous piece of material. And if they find a flaw in the middle of it, they got to roll the whole thing back up and send it back because they can't use it. Wow. Luckily for us, we can cut smaller pieces out of it to make our helmets. So we got in on the deal <laughs> that no one else could get because, you know, the cast off was, you know, 30, you know, 300 yards, but there was, you know, a, a three inch de defect. So we cut around the defect and we, we got these huge bolts of material, but it's incredibly difficult to work with. Um, and to tell you how much it is, I mean, our, our average shell master can make between 100 and 120 shells a day depending on which models he's making, but he's hand laying shells in a mold, you know, 30 pieces in a hot mold, three or four molds, five molds at a time. He can make 100 to 120 shells a day. Wow. In the clothing, it is so exacting that it takes that same shell expert one day to make one shell. So wow. when we talk about our, 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 our desires, I'd rather sell 120 fiberglass helmets every day <laughs> than one carbon. So even at $4,000, we're losing money you know it's not a money-making proposition yes we're making money on the helmet but that guy just burned the potential to make 120 helmets so carbon is not our desire we make it because people need it in formula one we make a, a corsair x version of it and you can buy it for the people who want the absolute most incredible uh, best and it is gorgeous the carbon is just unbelievable super light but it doesn't do anything any better than our fiberglass helmets you know it, it's it's lighter and it looks pretty and it's got probably more abrasion resistance than fiberglass, not much. I mean, our fiberglass helmet can pass every impact test that the Formula One helmet can, just shy of the abrasion. Um, so in the grand scheme of things, all things being said, I think uh, a $970 Corsair versus a $4,000 Corsair RC, you know, if you got the money, awesome. I'll, I'll ask them to make a helmet for you. 
But going back to the technology is, you know, EPS and fiberglass have been around since Mr. Rice started making helmets back in the early 50s. But they, and they've researched and all the research they've done, they have never found a material that is as stable as EPS across all heat ranges. EPS is incredibly reliable and stable and predictable at extremely cold temperatures EPS, and extremely- EPS is expanded polystyrene. Correct. Okay. Expanded polystyrene. That's the foam. It looks like a cooler foam, but obviously it's a little more exotic than just cooler foam. Right. Um, but because it's, you know, think about it at, at, at minus 20, it's still pliable and it's still doing its job. Right. At, at 150, it's still pliable and still doing its job. So it hasn't gotten harder at cold. It hasn't gotten softer in heat. It's incredibly reliable and stable. And we found other materials that can do better at certain temperatures, better at certain impacts, better at certain thicknesses, but nothing does it all. And because you can't tell me how you're going to crash, I'm not going to change it. You know, our helmets are designed for anything you could possibly throw at it. We don't have the luxury of <laughs> luxury. I'm sure the tired guys, guys will kill me if I say this. But if, if they look at the track, they're talking about heat and abrasion and you know the, the the materials and the tread they can design a helmet for or a tire for any track or any conditions and and be specific about it and improve i don't have that luxury because even even if you tell me the kind of racetrack you're going to do i don't know how you're going to crash i don't know if someone's going to crash into you i don't know if you're going to crash into somebody else so we have to do it for everything and eps allows us to do more of all of that without knowing what's going to happen and there are other materials that are being interjected into helmets these days and i hear good things about them i just don't know enough about them to know if they are a, a, a sidestep or a forward step. I don't know. Um, but Arise World is, you know, the shell construction, it comes so far. It's matched our EPS inner liner construction. They work incredibly well together harmoniously with, you know, just this concept of, you know, decades of proof that they work and we built on that. You know, you have to, you have to give us some pretty compelling evidence and proof that what you're bringing to me is going to make it better across all spectrums in any scenario without making it go backwards. Because, you know, throwing technology at something simply because you're tired or you think it needs to be, you know, thrown at it and improved for, for whatever reason, you know, it's not a good reason. So, you know, fiberglass has come a long way. We use exotic fibers. You know, most of our fiberglass materials and, and supporting materials um, are more expensive than some carbons that are on the market today. Um, they're definitely the most expensive fiberglass uh, materials on the market, but they're more expensive than most carbons. Like you, know, you see all these YouTube videos of guys making carbon parts and cars and pieces. All of that carbon can be bought online fairly cheaply, you know, relative term cheap, um, but it's cheaper than our fiberglass. Uh, and we buy it in large volumes and we have a fairly good supplier and we do, we do really good uh, volumes with them and we get a good price, but it's still really expensive. Um, and I've had people go through the factory and I joke about wanting everyone to go through the Arise factory. I want everyone to see how Arise are made because it's the most incredible process of, it's a real working machine shop, real working factory. People are putting helmets together by hand and everyone cares about what they're doing because they're not just putting pieces together to make a product. They know that what they're doing, someone's going to, you know, kind of put their faith in that and to protect themselves. And they, they take it very seriously. So if someone's discounting our helmets, and giving away what we worked so hard to bring them to market. If they're discounting and disrespecting Arai, I wanna send, send them to Japan so they can make a shell as punishment and realize how hard it is to make that shell. They will never discount Arai again. The same token, if a guy's an Arai champion and he's 
selling a rye all day long and, and spouting the virtues of a rye and selling a rye for all the good things that we do. I want to send him to Japan so he can make an rye shell and be able to say that I'm made in a rye shell. It's it's the most rewarding and punishing thing you can imagine. Making <laughs> rye shells is hard work, but it is rewarding work. And I think it's it needs to be seen and experienced by everyone to truly appreciate what goes into an rye. And everyone who's gone to the factory in the end always make the comment of, I can't believe you can make them so cheap. You know, right. a rye should actually cost more. And I agree, but you know, we, we, <laughs> right. we, we, I'd be happy to be right. But, um, but, but we do have to be, you know, try and stay within, you know, the, the available budget of most people. And that's the cool thing about a rise. You know, we're considered by many to be the best helmet in the world. And yet we're attainable. You know, anyone in this world that they save enough money and work hard enough can attain an awry helmet. I could never possibly afford the best car, boat, house, you know, Learjet. I couldn't afford any of those things. But if I save a little money, I can buy an awry helmet. Anyone who rides a motorcycle, scooter or not, save enough money, you can buy it. It's within your reach to buy the best helmet in the world. I find that remarkable that, um, you know, the best in an industry that has to do with your protection is within reach of anyone who, who desires it, it is it is and and pr price is always an awkward subject and actually as ultimate motorcycling we always try and avoid it um just simply because everybody's perception of whether something is you know worth it or value is completely different i mean i know some people who will go to and, and have a starbucks coffee every day of the week and i know other people who think that a starbucks coffee is absolutely outrageously priced um and would never think of going in there so everybody has a has a different perception of what is value um and and of course there is no doubt that an awry is is among the premium helmets in terms of price there are several of your competitors also have priced have have helmets priced in the same range so it's not like you've got unreasonable pricing that's way more than anything else um but certainly you are at a premium price but it's a premium product and I know it's a cliche, but um, the problem with our heads is that they are the control center for everything else. And, and, and typically, if I'm going out, if I'm, it, I would rather ride without a jacket or without the boots or whatever, because I think, well, if something happens and I break my leg or I hurt my arm or I would tear my shoulder or something, it's going to be really nasty and I believe me I don't want to do it but it's not going to kill me but you only need to bang your head at the lowest possible speed um, <clears throat> and we have direct experience of this we had a contributor at the magazine many years ago and he was a non-helmet guy lovely guy um, and we had argument after after argument with him and finally he was on a charity toy run um, he fell off his bike <clears throat> The guy behind him said he was doing maybe 15 miles an hour. And of mm. course, he died um, completely mm. uninjured, co literally completely uninjured. But he banged his head. Um, and, you know, you hear these stories and I'm like, no, you have to wear you have to wear a helmet and um, just just wear it, wear a decent one where if just make the effort and stretch to, to buying a premium quality helmet. Now, I, Personally, like I say, I mean, I, I arrive my life on more than one occasion, so I'm kind of biased. But uh, I don't want to come across as too much of a fanboy here. But uh, but yes, I mean, you, you know that uh, that I do like I, I do like and appreciate what you guys do. 
But um, but even if I had to had to buy helmets, I would buy an Arai, and I would find a way to afford it. Yeah, I mean, your point is, you know, it's a good point. You, you can ride with a broken foot. You can ride with, you can live with a broken foot. You can survive, you know, broken arms, hands, shoulders. You can survive without feet. But, right. you know, sometimes the, the computer doesn't reboot as easily as you might hope it would. Yeah. And, and, and hitting your head from low speeds and low heights, I mean, you know, we do tests on our on the on the snow rig to show the energy, you know, the test rig in Japan, the energies involved. You drop the anvil on 12 inches. Five kilogram head form from 12 inches, it's lethal to some people. That amount of energy, because it's that sudden stop. The foam and the shell that distribute the energy over the widest area and all that foam, not just directly in the impact, but three, four, five, six inches of radius around that impact site. All that styrofoam is absorbing that energy, slowing down your head as it pushes through it. It's a tremendous amount of, of, of good you know, work that it's doing to avoid that energy going straight to your brain, having your, 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 your brain slam against your skull, tear those neurons. And right. it, is, it is amazing how much of an impact it has, how much difference it can make. Sure. Um, and like you said, you know, some people... They'll spend more money on boots than they will on a helmet. I gotta buy a four hundred dollar pair of boots. I can't afford a helmet, or I just bought a you know eight thousand dollar motorcycle. Give me the cheapest helmet you've got because they don't know the difference, and I understand that. You know they they don't know everything that goes into it. They all have the same standards. They're all round, smooth, and shiny. They all have pretty graphics. They think you know they're all the same, and you know I can't fault them for that um, because you know we're trying to get the message out, but it's difficult without numbers. People love numbers. They love well, this one's five, that one's seven. Seven must be better. Right. We don't have those kind of numbers to share. We just have to explain to them you know, the dynamics and what we do, why we do it, like what we're doing here. Right. Um, and hopefully they, they at least step up. You, know, you don't have to buy an Arai today. You have to learn. You know, Most people come to an Arai after two or three purchases. They, you know, people keep telling them, Arai, Arai, Arai. They try the Arai on. They know it's comfortable, but oh, it's really expensive. So they buy something less. And a lot of times they'll buy something better than they were planning on because Arai has shown them, oh, that's really comfortable. But I can't afford it. I'll try and find something just as comfortable. It will never be the $100, $150 helmet. So they get two or 250 and they wear it and it wears out in a, in a quick time and it gets noisy and it's kind of falling apart. So they come back and the dealer says, okay, you want to do the Arai? Now it's still too expensive. <laughs> right. so they come and they get the next one through 253, 350, something like that. It's better. They're happier. You know, a year goes by, it wears out. It gets shabby, it gets noisy. It's starting to fall apart. So they come in and a lot of times you're like, a, a good dealer will say, are you tired of messing around? Now, if you just bought an Arai in the first place, instead of those two helmets, you would have been almost there. Now it's the you're going to buy a third helmet, which will exceed what an Arai would have cost. An Arai is a five-year warranty, and a lot of times they go longer than that. Um, but in the in the grand scheme, second, I mean, third or fourth purchase is is average, and usually it's a good thing because now they have perspective. Now they've tried other helmets and they realize that not bad, but noisy and fell apart too quick. Better lasted longer but still not great and you know fit and finish and comfort they have the awry now they know what noise should be how it should move on your head and if they're fit properly they're just glowing and once you're in a ride you rarely ever leave you become our best advocate because you want to share with everyone don't make the mistake i made you know just just get in the ride it's, it's just the tiny details i mean even another detail and you pro pro probably you've only ever worn a ride so you don't actually know this but the placement of the attachment of where the chin strap is, um, if that isn't precisely correct, the chin strap doesn't quite, 
it doesn't quite connect right underneath your chin and it can either be a little too far forward or a little too far back it can be more hard to it's a tiny tiny detail but clearly it's all those tiny little things that every time you put it on you're like you know what this thing was bloody expensive but i'm glad i did it and, and you're right i mean imagine that that placement everyone's jaw is different but a little bit too far back it hits your throat a little bit too far forward it's it's rubbing into the pivot point or onto your jawbone and imagine everyone putting it on and saying wow this is so comfortable i'm always amazed you go to a show and thousands of people come to the show and try a helmet on and they're all just this is so great and they're all so different. It's amazing that one helmet just manage, manages to morph itself and fit everyone comfortably. It's, it's tremendously rewarding. And I've, I haven't, I've been with, I've been in the Rye. My father started with the Rye, you know, before I was born. Mr. Rye loves to joke and, and tell. I, I believe, didn't you, didn't you actually go to the factory before you were born? Mr. Rye met me before I was born. He met my mom when she was pregnant with me. So <laughs> right. he takes great pride in telling everyone that. Um, <laughs> he knew me before I was born and, and I was born into this. And so I've tried other helmets and, and I've other helmets that they don't have ear pockets, you know, or they have ear pockets that were made for little ear people. I'm not sure what the term is, but we have ear pockets because people have ears and we have big ear pockets because people have big ears and they're up and down and front and back and all different positions. And it always, it always makes me giggle and I have to be very delicate with a lot of people saying, you know, there's something wrong with my helmet. It's, it was designed wrong. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Well, it, <laughs> it pinches my left ear. And I'm like, well, our helmets are symmetrical, but heads are not. And he's like, no, 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 no. Your, your helmet's wrong. And I had to tell him to send me a picture and you see it and his left ear's a quarter inch or a half inch higher than the other one. And I have to be delicate and say, you know, your head's, you know, it's not perfectly symmetrical and the helmet is, and we dance around it. We make him happy. You know, we trim a little bit of soft bone here and there, but it's kind of funny that every once in a while we run into the, the person on the peripheral and we've made a customer that is extremely particular. A right customer is agonized with us over the tiniest detail, how comfort or pressure point of this. We've created monsters, really. But it's it keeps us on our toes, right? We have to make our customers happy and we tweak and you know, we have peel away chin liner and temple foams or cheek pad and temple foams to adjust for you know broad cheekbones or uh, your temple. I have a somewhat of a middle temple. Some people have a sunken temple, some people have a protruding temple. We've adjusted right. for that so people can tweak their helmet according to their personal preference. So it's one of those things where I, I, I'm amazed how good they fit out of the box. I'm just tickled pink that we we're able to make these subtle little adjustments that let anybody tweak it just a little bit more to make it theirs. You know, the different headliners, we used to sell a lot of different headliner thicknesses. Now it's very rare. You know, most of our racers fit right out of the box. Very few get an extra right. peak pad or headliner. Um, so it's one of those things where you know, you make the point of the subtle details and how wonderful it is. Just imagine, again, the melting pot we're dealing with and the, you know, everyone's head shape, facial structure is like a fingerprint. And to fit so many people so well, it's remarkable. And it just, it, it continues to give me pride. And every time I come to work, I work for the best helmet company in the world. And it's just, I love coming here because it's such a tremendous thing to represent a quality product that actually protects people and does it really, really well. Even if they never use it for protection, it's the best time they're ever going to own. Right. I would agree with that. Um, okay. Well, I don't know if there's anything else that that uh, that you want to add um, in terms of what's what's coming up, or no, we've 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 already done an hour, and you don't have three more hours to go into details, and then uh, <laughs> and that's just the basic details. I can't tell you about new stuff that's coming because it's probably a little too far in the future to to, 
to do the market any good right now. I mean, right now the market's so hot, um, we can't keep product in the shelves. You know, everyone's over-ordering, we're trying to overproduce, we can't, we're finite. Suppliers uh, can't get product. We can't get a container. You can't get a shipping, a boat to put the container on. You get the port, the port can't clear it. The trucks can't pick it up and deliver it. I mean, we're at this, this huge bind. Um, and for the next six months, we're gonna be trying to play catch up because you know, motorcycling has proven to be a very excellent social distancing sport. Um, <laughs> and, and it's played to our advantage, but nobody was prepared for it, nobody. Um, so we're trying to catch up with that, but of course we're still developing new products. And we have a couple of new things in the works for next year. When next year? I don't know. Um, this year was kind of, you know, last year was kind of a wait and see. This year was kind of a, we didn't know, but we couldn't, you know, we weren't able to prepare. Um, there were no shows to deal with, to introduce anything. Um, it's been quite difficult, but we've been busy trying to make more helmets, but there's at least something new coming next year on the horizon. Interesting. Um, at least one thing. But I, I, I like, I like your philosophy of evolution rather than revolution. Um, you know, you guys have got some, uh, you just use the best of the best materials. Your design is absolutely just perfect. And again, honed over decades of, of trying to get it right. Um, and the product is absolutely exactly what the market needs. I think just there are some people that don't necessarily realize that, but um, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it and appreciate you telling us all about uh, what you guys do. Again, I, I just love to share the story and I love to, to you know, connect things. So it tends to get a little longer uh, than usual. I love sharing it. Anyone who listen, I will, I will share as long as I can, as long as they'll listen. Um, and I do appreciate the, the, the platform and you guys, what you do. Uh, and I look forward to you know, hooking up at the, uh, the next uh, press launch. Um, and before then, hopefully something else, we can do this again sometime. Just let me know. Okay, terrific. Thanks, Brian. Thanks so much. All right. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. See you.